0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent, documentary, and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Caspar. It's the greatest literary mystery of all time. Who wrote the works of Shakespeare? Although the official story has held sway for centuries, questions over the authorship of the plays and poems have persisted. Mark Twain, Sigmund Freud, Charlie Chaplin, and Orson Welles are among the many famous figures who doubt that the grain dealer from Stratford-upon-Avon was England's star of poets. Last Will and Testament will transform the way you look at Shakespeare— twin sisters and filmmaker Laura Wilson-Mathias and Lisa Wilson, Intricate Historical Journey charts the fascinating documentary, Last Will and Testament. It also has the support and uh, backing of the executive producer, Roland Emmerich. We're joined today by the twin sisters and filmmakers, Laura Wilson-Mathias and Lisa Wilson. Welcome to Film School Radio.
1: Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having us. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much. I just thoroughly enjoyed this film. One of the things that I was struck by was the way in which you're able to bring to bear a lot of information in a fairly short period of time. I felt like the setup of the the documentary, you get right to it and you bring in a lot of different voices to the people who say, Shakespeare wrote the plays very articulate very well spoken really well done that way and then you bring in the people who are saying well this this just doesn't add up there are things about his life and and just sort of artifact in, information and artifacts that don't they just don't line up i just thought the way you set it up was beautiful i'll ask you i'll start with you lisa Where did you come into sort of the world of Shakespeare? Are you fans? Are you you a fan of his work? How did this all kind of get going?
1: We know, like so many students in high school, you know, you're introduced to Shakespeare, but you struggle because it's difficult, the language, that kind of thing. But in college, I started acting. And so that's when the authorship question came in for me because I could sense that there was a, a a subterfuge or so, uh, like a double meaning in a lot of what I was um, working with in the place, particularly in Hamlet. And so I felt like there was an authorship question. And so it really came out of that.
0: When you say subterfuge, do you mean that in the writing, you detected that someone writing it was trying to send you a message of authorship?
1: Absolutely, yeah, okay. throughout the place, and that they're struggling with authorship and anonymity. They know that they're, they're going to be consigned somehow to historical oblivion. You can kind of sense there's an urgency there, and then you also sense that it's got it's multi layered in that you're dealing with some political satire in there. I just felt like these actors or these parts were real, that they were real people, like Lord Burley as Polonius. Shakespeare himself speaking as Hamlet, you know, and Queen Elizabeth in there as Titania. I just felt like we were dealing with uh, social commentary and in some regards, political and dynastic commentary in the plays. So that's what sparked my interest in it. And we were lucky because we, Laura and I just started inhabiting the world that is Shakespeare authorship. We attended a lots of conferences, we interviewed a lot of different people. So we were able to inhabit that world for a good 15 years before we set out to actually put it to film. And if you'll notice the entire film, the script itself is based on all the interview. Uh, we just did a radio cut based on them. They tell the story. And that's really where we wanted that perspective. So thank you for acknowledging how it was laid out because we put a strong effort toward letting the different archetypes, so to speak, in the question speak. And that's on both sides of of the authorship. So the first part is really getting us into the Strapper Man and what that traditional story looks like, how academia promotes it through their biographies every year, then it transitions into authorship, brings forward several different candidates, tries to develop a profile. But in that part three, we shift into that political dynastic element that looks like is very much a part of the authorship question.
0: Laura, what was your journey into Shakespeare? Is that very similar? Is it similar to what Lisa experienced or how did you um, come to?
2: It was it was a bit different. Uh, like in life, I followed her. She came out first. So I came out second and I followed her into the question. But I was a filmmaker. Independent filmmakers are always looking for that great story, that great whodunit, that great truth, that great passion. And as soon as she started talking to me about the authorship question and we just took out uh, with a camera and started interviewing the pioneers of the movement. Again, this is now 20, some years ago. So two decades of documenting the best of the best um, of people that are looking at the question on both sides of the question, obviously. And I think our cast of the film shows sort of that length and breadth of who we'll be able to pull. We have three of the premier Shakespearean actors perform- um, contributing to the film we've got the honorary president of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust so yeah we tried to represent both sides of the argument but yeah I came to it as a filmmaker looking for a great story and the greatest writer in the English language and who done it put the two together and you've got dynamite so Yeah. yeah
0: well I'm going to take a half a step back here because I don't want in this day and age we're in 2021 as we speak and I don't want to presume all that many people know the place that William Shakespeare has in, certainly in Western literature. And I think it's fa- safe to say world literature in terms of when the of the pantheon of writers is spoken of, uh, Shakespeare is very much near the top, if not at the top. So let's kind of put him in his historical context. He, re- he was born in, in the late mid to late 1500s. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, either one of you, I don't know who would feel more comfortable taking this question, um, to sort of explain Shakespeare in the context of, of his time, uh, as, as we know him today, as most people know him. Lisa, do you want to take this?
1: The Stratford man, the William Shakespeare or Shakespeare, Stratford?
0: Yes. I mean, yes. What, what most people know of William Shakespeare. Let's kind of walk through what in that sort of, in that context.
1: Yeah. It's basically a glove maker's son, you know, um, Travels to London, strikes it big on the London stage, writes the greatest plays, and then retires in his forties, I think it is, isn't it, Laura? And dies in sixteen sixteen, and the rest is history.
0: Can we say that during the time that his plays were staged, which were during his lifetime, was he considered to be at that time an accomplished playwright?
2: The name Shakespeare was known. It was first published um, as part of a dedication to Venus and Jonas in 1593. So the name is in print by 1593 for the first time in association with one person uh, Henry Winsley the 3rd Earl of Southampton to whom he dedicates Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece. These are two long narrative poems. So then the plays start to trickle out into the theaters in the 1590s. The name was known whether the person associated who whether people were meeting this person, if people were meeting him going to dinner with him, celebrating him we don't, there's no documentary evidence to support that. We don't have any letters saying I had dinner with him or Shakespeare performed at court today or he was presented to Queen Elizabeth today. That evidence is missing. So that's why there's sort of this nagging suspicion from the beginning. The name, as it's printed on the plays and poems and the quartos, is known, but the person, not so much.
0: So he was not known of his time. He was not known in the period of time that his plays, were his plays staged during his lifetime?
2: Absolutely. Again, they're staged and he's supposedly acting in them. So to that degree, he would be known, potentially he's on a cast list. He would be known as an actor, but whether he was known as the author, some people would argue yes, but again, there's no documentary evidence. That's the problem is there's been a lot of the biographies that have been written, the story that's been handed down to us, is based on a lot of supposition and could have, would have, possibly have been, but again, there's no documentary evidence, and that's mm-hmm. what really started the core okay. of this question for us: is finding what do we know, what's supported by fact, and why is there this con- this disconnect between the author and the plays?
0: Now, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he died in 1616,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and the compendium of his works were not published for another. 16 years after his death,
2: right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so everything, including his, the first image of him and the first compilation of all of his works, or nearly half had never been published during his life, comes out well after he dies, 1623.
0: Okay, so in the period of time between when he died and when this is published, who has ownership of all of this? And I think that would be a key piece. <laughs> be a bit of evidence as to who actually had possession of of the written word. Who who had that?
1: They're called the grand possessors and that is still a a mystery. I mean, we have our suspicions on who had them, you know, family members, certainly Wilton and the Pembrokes, um, certainly collect them. Ben Johnson certainly was in on it, um, knew who Shakespeare was, um, and writes obviously the the great encomium to the first folio. but who has the plays? You know, we, Laura and I tend to think after 20 years at this, that the plays weren't written for the public theater, they were written for the court. And so you've got a courtier, he's writing them. He's not publishing them under his own name. He's taking on various pen names and that kind of thing. And then they migrate to the playhouses where where they, they start associating a name with the plays, but not necessarily as Laura put, a man with the works. We've got the name Shakespeare, he starts to appear on these quartos when the plays are being performed on the stage. But at some point, it's like the cat gets let out of the bag when they migrate to the public playhouses. But again, it's still just a name and not necessarily a man associated. And when you go back to The Stratford Man, there's no literary paper trail to bring him forward as the author. We know he's being celebrated. These plays are doing well. But again, there's still this disconnect.
0: Isn't there even some hidden clue or a clue with with his name? Isn't his name kind of a enigma for if that's the right way to put it?
2: Yeah. Again, um, Shakespeare, as it's been printed on the cordos during his lifetime, is hyphenated, which often denotes a a pseudonym or a pen name. It's not when you understand the Elizabethan age. There, there were. Nome de plumes. There people are writing, especially noblemen, you're not supposed to write for the public stage. It's beneath your station. So people are using all sorts of devices to disguise their identity when going into publication. This is not a rare concept. The way the publications come out, how it's spelled, how it's different than the man from Stratford actually spells his name, throws up some questions that needed looking at. And that's what this film dives into. Yeah. Some yeah.
0: I, I don't want to give. I I feel like I'm veering into the territory of giving away too much here, and I don't. Right. I don't.
2: Exactly. Right. I, yeah. I don't.
0: I, I don't be, but it's hard not to because as I'm watching it, there is this kind of. There's a number of oh my god moments in this <laughs> because for as long as I can remember being taught English, the the name William Shakespeare was part of you know the lexicon of those people, and so and it was never. I never even considered of course I didn't know the history of England during this period of time and Queen Elizabeth is needless to say an incredibly important player in the life of in the life and times of William Shakespeare and and her and her court and the people swirling around her court obviously had an influence on the works of William Shakespeare but I do want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with the co-directors of this wonderful film called Last Will and Testament, and that would be Laura wilson Matthias, as well mm-hmm. as uh, Lisa Wilson, the twin sisters. I guess the question is, why, yeah, and I, uh, L- Laura, you sort of explain a little bit of the reason, but why the if, if, it's a big if, because in the film, there are some people who are passionately defensive or defenders of the name of William Shakespeare and his role in the writing of the plays and articulate, as I said at the beginning of the interview, very well spoken. They have their own set of facts and what they believe to be true. But is the question of why this, if it is, in fact, William Shakespeare did not write these plays, is it is it a matter of the politics and the court and all of the rest of it during that period of time? If Is that is that enough of a Rationale for why the subterfuge
2: yeah you have to uh, it's helpful anyway to realize that this was um a highly censored period of time um publication was new there's a monopoly on the publication is incredibly censored um society and these works were initially supported by Queen Elizabeth and Lord Burley her uh, chief advisor um and minister um so these these plays were pro-propaganda. Again, as Lisa said, they migrated. Elizabeth loved entertainment. She was intelligent. She was a highly intellectual person herself. She loved these entertainments. They started there. These people were writing for her. Shakespeare, whoever he was, was really trying to please his queen and write the best of the best. And it was so good at it that it was, the minister saw how this could be used as propaganda, pro tudor propaganda in the Elizabethan playhouses, a burgeoning art form. So yeah, it all makes sense how it all sort of started to work well until Shakespeare in his later years started to put some pretty important satire um, into the plays and some political intrigue into the plays and kind of telling the true history behind the scenes of what's going on at the court of Elizabeth. And it wasn't a pretty place to be um, political, a lot of cloak and dagger going on. And um, I think Shakespeare was caught up in that. I think that he put some of that into his plays and that's what made these plays very dangerous. And I think um, the Orthodox view has had 300 years of momentum and it's all based on half truth then poor evidence. And so those doubters, when they first started coming out and it's a pretty distinguished list of people who've doubted from Sigmund Freud to Orson Welles to, I mean, some great intellects have looked at this question and said, wait a second, there's a problem. And with all paradigm shifts, it just takes a few courageous doubters to start laying out the facts. And in 1920, J. Thomas Maloney, a schoolmaster from England, decided to come up like a detective would. Give me the profile from what the plays tell me. What did this guy know? What did he like to talk about? What were his problems? What were his character traits? He came up with a profile and he went looking for Hamlet or looking for the author <laughs> at the court. And he found a perfect match and what's compelling is the more you lay this person's life onto the plays, not only do the plays become incredibly more interesting and you're insider, you're getting an inside view of what's going on at the court by reading the plays. Yes, they're entertaining on one level, but then you're getting a whole nother level to the plays. So I think there's a lot at stake. Obviously there's the Shakespeare industry and there's a the whole publishing industry. Well, yes that's at stake and that goes without question, but the world is changing the paradigm shifts and institutions are crumbling. And I think the Shakespeare question is one of those. I think that the public's can are, and they are, the, the groundswell of academics and um, Shakespeare lovers into the authorship question has been fantastic the last 15 years, and it will continue to do so.
0: Hopefully. Yeah, and I do want to comment on what you said about the time, the Elizabethan time, the Virgin Queen. Uh, England was a, a bit behind uh, the uh, the continent in terms of uh, the uh, culturalization. They were lagging in a lot of ways, and she saw this, the works to bring them into into the kind of uh, more in keeping with the rest of Europe, it, to raise the, the cultural level. And
2: absolutely, you nail it on the head with that, absolutely.
0: There is not only all of the things you identified, but there's this kind of overriding desire on her part to bring England into the New Age and the beginning. Would this be considered part of the beginning of the Enlightenment? I don't, I'm, my history is not all that.
2: Yeah, the, the Renaissance had been happening on the continent and Shakespeare obviously mm-hmm. traveled to Italy and brought back a lot and he had studied the classics. So he understood, you know, this flowering of intellectual knowledge that was the Renaissance and how England has fallen behind. There are a good hundred, if not more years behind. And this the Elizabethan age, I mean, if it's known for anything, but it's the age of Shakespeare and the flowering of the Renaissance in England. Finally, England was catching up with the continent and Shakespeare and Elizabeth, because of her support, patronage of this author, whoever he was, <laughs> brought uh, you know the greatest flowering of. Uh, That England had seen. So there's a lot at stake.
0: There is. And you you mentioned the Shakespeare industry, you know, academia, uh, you know, it's raison d'etre is to find the truth, is to seek out the truth of whatever field of endeavor they are involved in. Right. That's kind of what they talk about. So w- would it shake the, you know, the, uh, the, the foundation of, of civilization if we found out that, she, that the man we know from Stratford is not the actual author of, of these plays? I mean, how, how would it impact, other than the industry that you just described, these Shakespeare books and memorabilia, I'm sure are um, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of the, the millennium um, of them. So, well, I mean, w- what, would, what would be the impact?
1: I like to think that it, it would just open up a whole new avenues of exploration for them. We need them more than ever because they've done their homework, so to speak. They just have to shift the lens a, a bit and it will open up so much avenues of expression and creation, gives tells us a lot more about literary creation, how it was done, how they work together, the, the collaboration. Yes, they'd have to... Not necessarily admit they were wrong, but just they were looking at it from the wrong perspective. You know, the literary paper trail for The Stratford Man just isn't there. So how many more biographies are you going to roll off the presses every year that just give us all these should have, could have, possibly, may have, you know, why not try to drill down to the core and go, you know, and look for the facts? As I think it was Bill Boyle in 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 the film, you know, he put it perfectly. He says, leave Stratford, go to court that's where your answers are and if academia would do that it would transform their careers Uh, but maybe i'm a bit naive in that in that regard
0: well you won me over yeah i'm not one that that has wants to stand on on pomp and circumstance here it's the if it isn't the truth let's let's just be done with it let's just move on and as you said
1: shakespeare says truth is truth to the
2: end of reckoning (laughs) so if you're not willing to go the distance
1: well, Maybe this isn't for I mean, you. What,
2: what's what's the worst case scenario, right? If you start looking at the authorship, okay? you might actually enjoy the plays on another level. Yeah. If, you yeah. may not be convinced that you found a new author. You don't have to replace your your Shakespeare on the pedestal if you don't want to. But I guarantee, I guarantee if you love Shakespeare and you love the works, you're going to learn more about the works and enjoy the work on the, another level, despite who wrote them. So...
0: I was blown away by this documentary. I did not know what to expect going in, and it, it's so well done. I just want to let our listeners know that it's just it it's paced beautifully. I mean, obviously, there's a lot here I had no idea about, especially when it comes to the court, the Elizabethan court, and all of the different machinations. That in and of itself is a, a pretty remarkable history lesson, putting aside the investigation of who wrote the plays uh, of Shakespeare. But it's just interesting and all of the different uh political interests and how how it worked back then and uh i thought that was fascinating unto itself so i just had such a good time watching this film and great people in it you got uh, derek uh, jacoby uh vanessa redgrave there's a number of really wonderful uh people who are experts in the field of shakespeare who are willing to go down that road with you and uh, some who are defenders of the shakespeare as we now know it but all of them are really, really good and at what they do. So and that's all you can ask for. Well, I want to thank you both for not only the work, but for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. We've been talking with Laura wilson Matthias, as well as Lisa Wilson, the twin sisters and filmmakers, for this remarkable documentary film. I really seriously uh, recommend this to you because it, you're just going to have a good time, but you're also your mind will be opened. And uh, the, the film is called Last Will and Testament, and it is available beginning April 8th, and it's available on iTunes, Fandango Now, Google Play, YouTube. Check it out. And again, Last Will and Testament. Uh, Laura wilson Matthias, and Lisa Wilson, thank you so very much for spending some time with us.
2: Yeah, we're grateful. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate thank the support. You.